Community Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we're speaking with John Boone. John is a wildlife biologist, and he is a past guest of the Community Cats podcast. If you're interested in finding out about John's background and all of the work that he's done in the past, you feel free to go to communitycatspodcast.com, and in the search bar, you can put episode 258, or you can just put the name John Boone in the search bar, and that episode will come right up. But uh, today, we're going to do a deep dive on some new research that's come out John has been working on. So John, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Thank you. Good to be back. I'm just eager to get right into the thick of things here. You know, the research came out several months ago. It's been published, but I really think it needs to be amplified worldwide. So tell us a little bit about the work that you've been doing. Well, this is the latest element, if you will, of some work that's been done by a group of us who are associated with the Aliens for Contraception in Cats and Dogs, along with some other partners from other animal welfare organizations. And the overarching goal of that work was to try to understand how we can use the tools that we have to manage cat populations more efficiently and more effectively. You know, that's normally thought of in terms of how much bang do you get for the buck in terms of bringing cat numbers down using sterilization approaches over time. And we've done a lot of that work. But this particular paper that was published recently took a little bit different angle on that topic. And it recognized that most people who are involved in TNR programs care about improving the lives of the cats that they work with, and they care about saving lives. So this particular paper looked not so much at what happens to the numbers of cats over time if you manage them in different ways, but how many lives, in essence, you can save in the process of doing that. So that was the new twist on this research. Looking at some of the data that you had posted on your website, it was really dramatic. How did you evaluate sort of like the quality of lives or what was the methodology around the research? We use simulation models, which are a common tool in lots of scientific enterprises. And we usually use those models when it would be difficult to go out into the field and actually do these experiments over and over again. Um, A simulation model is basically trying to capture all of the critical elements of this system of a population of outdoor cats that we think are important and express them in mathematical terms and let this virtual population, if you will, live its lives and do its reproduction and be managed within a virtual world. And by taking that approach, we can do a lot of different experiments a lot of different times, and we believe that that's a reasonable way to try to compare the outcomes that you get if you were to manage one way versus another way. So it's a, it's a modeling approach that we used in this research and in the other research we've done through the ACC and D group. 
So you would use different factors. Start out with saying you had a colony of 100 cats and you would say for colony A, we would trap and remove X number of cats. Colony B, we would TNR 25% of the cats and, and then group C do 75% of the cats. Was that sort of some of the scenarios that you did? Exactly, except we did many, many more scenarios overall. And we, of course, distilled it down to about seven core scenarios that we looked at in the most recent paper. Those were to do nothing, which is the state of existence that lots of outdoor cat populations live in. They're just doing their own thing and they're sort of managing their own existence. And then we looked at three different kinds of treatments. One is sort of a traditional animal control treatment where you trap cats, you remove them. Maybe they're euthanized in the shelter, maybe they're adopted out. That wasn't really part of this particular window that we took, but they're just being removed from the population. A second kind of treatment was culling, which is the same except for in a cull, as most people, you know, unfortunately know, cats are removed, but then people call it sufficient and they go back home and they wait for the numbers to build back up to where they were and they do it all over again. And this was meant to capture the way that outdoor cat and dog populations are sometimes managed around the world traditionally. And then, of course, which is of most interest to your audience, we looked at the TNR scenario. So those are the three different types. Then for each treatment, we investigated doing that type of management at a relatively high intensity, meaning very aggressively, versus at a relatively low intensity. So if you add all of that up, that's seven different kinds of scenarios that we were focusing on. So I know many of the listeners are sitting there and saying, okay, so what were the results? We've done other work, other papers that I believe we talked about in the previous interview that looked specifically at what happens to the numbers of cats under those scenarios. But what we did that was the unique twist in this particular paper is to define something that we called preventable deaths. Now, every cat, every person, everything's going to die one way or another, but some deaths are the kinds of deaths that we would hope that we can prevent or at least defer by managing a population in the right way. So what we meant by preventable deaths is that obviously if an adult cat is removed from the population or culled from the population, that's a death that is preventable and that somebody could have decided to manage that colony a different way. And that cat would have continued to live and, and died a natural death of old age or whatever would happen to it. So that's one kind of preventable death that we tracked in this work. The other kind was kittens. We all know that they have the capability to make lots more babies than they actually need to replace themselves. If all of those babies lived, all of those kittens lived, and all of those kittens had their kittens, and all of those kittens lived, it would take no time at all for us to have to wade through a very thick layer of cats in order to get from point A to point Z. And that doesn't happen. And that's because in nature, animals like cats that produce lots of young also experience high levels of mortality of those young. So some kittens are going to die in outdoor populations, but we believe that the number of kittens who die prematurely in outdoor populations can be changed for the better, depending on the management choices you make. So deaths of kittens before they become adults and deaths of adult cats by virtue of a management choice that's lethal are the kinds of deaths we call preventable deaths. And our goal in this work was to see how many preventable deaths happened under these seven different management scenarios. What you came out with was what we all would really like to see, which is the high intensity T and R seem to work to the most uh, to the greatest effect, right? 
by far the lowest number of preventable deaths in this simulation modeling work that we did was associated with doing sterilization TNR at a high intensity. So there's a caveat there. It works great in that respect if it's done at the high intensity. If it's done at a lower intensity, it still reduces the number of preventable deaths, but it doesn't reduce them nearly as much. So the lesson there is that it's not sort of an even playing field. It's not like for every surgery you do, you get an incrementally equal increase in the number of deaths you prevent. You really start to prevent more and more of those deaths if you ramp up your TNR effort to an intensity that's sufficient. And um, if you're interested, I can sort of explain why that is. It has to do with the math, if you will, of how cats reproduce. But that's the bottom line. High-intensity TNR reduces preventable deaths, as we've defined them, by a factor of, I believe it was about 63 times fewer preventable deaths compared to doing nothing. Hey, everybody, Stacy here with the Community Cats Podcast. And I just wanted to let everybody know that early bird ticketing is open for our 2020 online cat conference, which will be on January 24th through the 26th. So we will get together on the evening of the 24th with Chelsea White, who has a YouTube show that's perfectly awesome. And then we will be getting together on the 25th and the 26th for two full days of jam-packed information all about community cats and community cat programs. So this is a virtual convention for anyone who'd like to help community cats. Please go to onlinecatconference.com to sign up today. Also, if you'd like to become an affiliate as a fundraiser for your organization, the information is right there on the website, as well as sponsorship opportunities. So I hope you'll check it out. Go to www.onlinecatconference.com and we look forward to seeing you then. Hey everyone, Hooch and I are here today to talk about Dr. Elsie's cat litter. Dr. Elsie's cat litter is known to be the best litter on the market and Hooch agrees. Many of you know that Hooch was a foster cat of mine that I adopted while at the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. We did use the Touch of Outdoors litter as we transitioned him from being an indoor-outdoor kitty to an indoor-only kitty. I'm thrilled that Hooch found his home with me, but there were many times when folks would call me saying their kitty didn't use the litter box. I was also thrilled that Dr. Elsie's Cat Attract litter came out as it gave me a resource to share with others that was affordable and in most cases successful in keeping this kitty in their home. As a special benefit to Community Cats podcast listeners, Dr. Elsie's is offering a rebate up to $20 off your first bag of any Dr. Elsie's litter. Just visit drelsies.com forward slash community cats podcast to print your rebate or fill out the online form. Try Dr. Elsie's today and you won't regret it. Yeah, before we jump into that math conversation, I'm going to put you on the hot seat right now and say, this is wonderful. It's great. It's saying all the things that many of us have believed in our heart of hearts is the way to go. But there's obviously a lot of naysayers out there. Since your research has been published, have you had any of those naysayers sort of approach you? And how have they come after the research to try and question it? As we all know, there are lots of people on both sides of the cat issue who um, believe something very strongly. There's a lot of reasonable people on both sides as well. And so, yes, there are people from the conservation community who fear that the lessons of this research, which are certainly encouraging for TNR, but they're not a blank check. Remember that for TNR to do this well, it has to be done at high intensity. 
and not all DNR efforts are. So they fear that people will concentrate on the positive results and not look at the cautionary results. Other people from the CAT side sometimes will look at this and say, I'm glad to see that TNR comes out ahead if it's done at high intensity in terms of reducing preventable deaths. But I sure wish that the results for the removal looked worse than they did. Um, so, yes, you get people who have a vested interest in their point of view from all sides of the spectrum who will express those concerns to some extent. But for the most part, I think people are happy to see relatively objective, balanced answers to these important questions and to have some encouragement going forward, which this work certainly gives them if they're interested in doing TNR programs. So if I was a person in my community and I was approaching my board of health or the animal control agency in town, and if we felt, you know, we really needed to help convince them that a very intense TNR program happened in that community, whether it's a private or a public or a private-public partnership, we would be able to bring this research as a way to convince folks that this would be the right way to go. Would you have any tips on how we should present this? I think there are three components of presenting this approach to the problem, particularly when you're dealing with a municipality or some other relatively high-profile implementation effort. One is certainly work like this, coupled with other work that's been done. That can show what's possible. This shows that in all likelihood, if done with sufficient intensity, TNR can not only reduce your cat numbers over time to a reasonable extent, but it can also save a lot of lives and prevent a lot of premature deaths. And that's a good thing. The other part of convincing skeptics or potential partners that this is the way to go has to do with the implementation in the real world. So I think you would have to have a reasonable, viable, logistically sound plan for doing the TNR at that intensity. And then thirdly, and a very important component that I probably mentioned in the last podcast when we talked, was that we need to measure what we're accomplishing as we go along using relatively simple tools. What is presented in this paper we've been talking about is sort of an averaged out estimate of what's likely to happen. But what actually happens in any given place at any given time is the subject of a lot of other factors. And we can't use a generalized model to prove whether we're having our desired effect in a particular place. So having as part of your plan the ability to monitor what's happening, again, using relatively simple tools and being able to demonstrate to potential partners and skeptics that you're prepared to actually show that you're having the effect that you want to have, I think is a critical part of convincing people who might otherwise be unwilling to cooperate. So it's those three things. It's the potential, it's the plan, and it's measuring what happens. And making sure that that implementation happens with regards to that plan, too. There's a lot of things in that basket of tools that you need to be able to assist cats in any community. But I think it's good to have that research behind you, too, so that then you understand that if resources are invested, you at least have some research behind you to show that you could have really positive conclusions. Absolutely. And it does reinforce something that I believe we talked about last time as well, which is that if you have a given pot of resources, money, people, time, and you are deciding how you want to spread those resources out over time, you have several different options. And this work suggests that you're going to get better results in terms of reducing your numbers with sterilization and in terms of preventing these deaths that we've been talking about if you use those resources most heavily at the beginning and get as many cats sterilized as quickly as possible, as opposed to spreading those resources out more evenly over time. 
When you first started on this research project endeavor, um, you obviously you put a really power packed team together. So I assume you all got together and tried to develop the methodology. Sometimes with research, you have an initial hope for what the results will be. As a wildlife biologist, was this something that surprised you or were you expecting this? No, it all makes perfect sense for somebody with a background in how animal populations operate. The thing that was um, a pleasant surprise in this process as we went along is that when the ACC and the organization put this group together, initially our goal was to just understand better how certain theoretical non-surgical contraceptives might work if we tried to use them to manage cat populations. That was the starting goal, and that grew into all of the other things that that group has done since then. So the surprise, if you will, has been how productive that initial inquiry grew to be over time. One other question I just would like to ask you, too, and you may or may not be able to really comment too much on it, but how does this research and your thoughts around the high-intensity TNR relate with the popularity of return to field nowadays? Well, as I understand it, return to field involves not only the elements of population management that we've been talking about, but elements of shelter operations and how it affects the shelters. So I'm not clear on how compelling the shelter-based arguments for return to field are. From my perspective, return to field is just a a twist on traditional sterilization-based management that involves returning the sterilized animals to the field. So I'm not sure about the answer to that question. It may give a sense a little bit of being a little less strategic, but yet very impactful in a different way from a shelter's perspective, but not necessarily impactful when you're talking about a microcosm of one colony, because that's not doing as much of that data management at that micro level. Maybe, I mean, this is my own personal opinions coming out here, but that's sort of the way that I feel the differences are. Yes, that that makes sense. And we've tried very hard in this work, even though most of the people involved in the work certainly have a kind of a mission-based preference to how we should approach managing outdoor cats. We've tried very hard to focus objectively on the questions that we're asking and accept the answers that we're getting and sort of factoring the shelter element of it into that work would have added a component that really wasn't part of that prescription we were trying to adhere to. So it will be up to others to decide how that fits into that broader picture. So with your work with um, ACC and D and the fact that there's a focus on non-surgical sterilization, is there anything that you can share with us from a cat perspective? Is there anything in the area for research that you know of with your partners? Well, there is a lot of optimism about certain approaches that are relatively new. I think it would be best served for me to give you a teaser and suggest to have Joyce Briggs on the show at some point to talk about those or someone perhaps from the Michelson Prize and Grants program, which is where a lot of that work is housed. But I've been involved with ACC&D for, I guess it's been about eight or nine years now. And um, certainly the folks in our organization who were the most technically knowledgeable about this research and potential techniques that could be used to achieve some sort of effective sterilant feel very optimistic about the avenue that's opened up over the last two or three years after several twists and turns in the story, as many of your listeners know. So I'm hopeful that as time goes by, we will have that non-surgical sterilant that does the job. Of course, it's a process because research takes time and it takes time to get things properly permitted to be used by the FDA or whatever organization is going to provide that permission. 
We've had Joyce on the show it was a while back, so I should catch up with her again. And I'm very eager to see what happens. I think Joyce gets the prize for patience because it's a very long wait, but I, I really do hope that we get to a point where we have non-surgical sterilization for cats, not only obviously locally in the United States, but I really think it's a global issue with regards to cats and dogs, that's for sure. Absolutely. And that's the premise of the ACCND group to try to accelerate that process and support it where possible. Cats and dogs, you know, they're good at reproducing and they have lots of tricks up their sleeves to try and frustrate our efforts. But I think we're probably on the right track. So John, if folks are interested in seeing the summaries and the actual research, how would they do that? This research was published in Frontiers in Veterinary Medicine, and it's an open access journal. I don't have the URL in front of me, but if you were to do a search, Frontiers in Veterinary Science, and my name, John D. Boone, then that paper should come up. And all the links are available on the ACCD.org website. You just have to go under research, I think, and there's even like a cat initiative tab. So you can just go straight through the website and you can find out all the information there. And you have a really cool slideshow in there that helps describe it if you're not somebody who wants to go in the deep dive and read the specific journal. So I thank you for putting something up there that's for all of us folks that aren't into science and the research. Yes. John, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? Only that I know that lots of folks who listen to this show do TNR for various uh, reasons and at various scales. Certainly, if you're out there just helping a few cats in your neighborhood, that's great. But if you're involved in a larger program that's ambitious, where you want to have a measurable impact on a larger area, we do have information that can help you in setting those up and planning them and measuring them. And if anybody's interested in going down that road, please contact me and I can put you in touch with the right resources. That's great. Is there an email that you can share or can they find you through the ACC and D website? I'm happy to share my work email, which is my last name, Boone, B-O-O-N-E, at G-B-B-O dot O-R-G. John, I want to thank you so much for joining me today as a guest on the show, and I hope we'll have you on again in the future. You're most welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Community Cats podcast. I would really appreciate it if you would go to iTunes, leave a review of the show. It will help spread the word to help more community cats. 